and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fall, the editor of the Toolkit, and my guest today is the director of the wonderful Ford vs. Ferrari coming out in November, James Mangold. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Great um, to be here. You know, this is such... I was with my family a couple weekends ago, and I'm not a car racing person, and I was stunned how many people knew this story, know this story, love this story. Right. Um, which I, I did not know, which is... Neither did I, by yeah. the way, before I kind of read it as a script and realized that this was a terrific a, a terrific story to tell. But I'm wondering, because um, this work, this movie works on so many levels, how did you find your way into this? Because although we a lot of people do know how it ends, it, it, it becomes so much more of a character thing and what's happening in these men's lives and kind of winning in life almost than in a, in a relationship. So I'm wondering how, you know, this is a, something that's been well documented. What was the kind of take and way in for you like when you first started with this? Well, obviously the dynamism and the kind of cinematic nature of the racing was attractive, but not without it being married to such unique characters. And I felt... Um, uh, there, back before I uh, made the first Wolverine movie, I had first caught sight of this script in a different iteration as was floating around. And um, uh, I didn't know whether there was a director on it at that time. And I went to Fox to find out about it. And they told me there was a director on it and handed me, actually, Darren had just jumped off of, of Wolverine. And suddenly that they handed me that script to take home with me. But, um, but I was really, that's, you're looking back to 2011. So... Uh, and I was really interested and really moved by that story. The, the reason the movie, um, I mean, I, not wishing ill on other filmmakers, ha but thankfully didn't get made um, up to that point, was that no one could figure out how to get the cost down to a point where, you know, movies like this are scary to studios. Why are they scary to studios? They're scary to studios because there's not much of a built-in audience. Mm. Um, there's not a sense that it's not trademark characters, it's a period piece, it's very expensive because there's really no way to do it without either doing what we did, which is building a kind of battery of, of modern inside but period skinned outside cars mm -hmm. that could handle the battering of what we were doing to them, um, which is not cheap. And, um, and what I did when it finally came my way after Logan um, was I immediately set to work with Jez and John Henry Butterworth at trying to get the script, um, which I thought was quite promising, but get it more in the character vein and less racing. Um, mainly, to there were two things. One is that um, at that point there was, uh, you might remember a point in the movie, and this may only be relevant to your audience after they've seen the movie. Most but, people, most people dig into this podcast right. after they've seen it. Okay, so there's a point in the movie where you watch Ken Miles stays behind when they go to Le Mans, and um, and it used to get played in the script where you went to Le Mans mm -hmm. with Shelby, and you watched a whole nother Le Mans. Oh. It was my theory that we should actually almost like. Uh, the Emerald City hold off actually other than giving you a taste in the first 30 seconds of the movie of Le Mans kind of hold it off for the entire length of the picture until we arrive there with Ken mm -hmm. and um, and so one of the big cuts I made to the movie was only going there that one time for the end of the picture and feeling like it's both we're coming there with Ken because um, uh, that's what's so important about that scene is to experience it through Ken being left out and it's it's a beautiful scene, but it also but just the scene. Of, you know yeah. that you're absolutely right. The the scene that ended up developing when I lifted it out, mm -hmm. I thought it's almost counterintuitive. But sometimes the most cinematic choice is sometimes mm -hmm. 
a counterintuitive one, which is instead of going to cover a gigantic race, mm-hmm. I'm going to stay alone with a guy in a garage and a radio. And he's, you're going to watch him listen to this race with all his friends on the other side of the earth racing and him stuck eating a bologna sandwich in this garage in the middle of the night, um, feeling alone and left behind. And um, so at the same time, I actually got to make a more interesting scene mm-hmm. with Christian Bale. I also you know, ended up pulling $7 million out of the budget just from losing that one sequence. And that, um, that was a little bit of what we did going through consistently was to try to build more of a piece. I mean, this is partly from my own background as, firstly, a dramatic director, not an action director or kind of um, shooter, you might say, as as a first move in my career, was that I want the film to be, if you didn't see the action, to be as good as any drama. I Mm. want the films in between parts um, in the way action people would look at it Mm -hmm. to be as good as any movie. And that... Um, because it's what I miss. I feel like we've gotten almost segregated where action pictures, bigger, muscular movies have gotten to where they operate almost without much drama at all. The characters, there's so many of them often that they only have three or four minutes of screen time to set up their, quote, problem and then resolve it. And on top of that, um, the movies themselves operate on such a sensory overload that you cannot almost get into an intimate space with the actors because you're kind of just been too bludgeoned to be able to do it. And I have to imagine that's also part of when you're you're breaking this with your screenwriters is you obviously have these big moments, big races um, that you know you're going to have to hit one way or another. And I imagine you're setting them up as almost emotional, like you have to like you're building them in terms of where the character is at that moment, right? I, I, where they to, are at the moment and also where they are in the course of their lives, meaning, um, for instance, Ken Miles is a character who doesn't bend, mm. who's an idealist, who has one goal, which is to finish first and to best his last time and to do better. So what more interesting thing can be asked of him in the third act of the movie than to slow down? Yeah. And um, uh, and also defeating probably the the assumption most people would have about a movie like this would be, oh, yeah, I get this movie, the underdogs against the da-da-da-da-da, and they're going to win in the end by the hair on their chin. And, and you know, part of what attracted me to this movie was that what you think is going to happen isn't exactly what happens. And um, because we have seen that movie enough. Mm. My old teacher, Milos Forman, had this great <laughs> expression. He would say, don't tell me two and two is yeah. four. That moment when Ken and we're in the car, and he makes that decision, it is so emotional, and it's just him. It's I just, can, just I can, a shot of Christian. I can, just, I can see the shot in my head, and while I was watching it, I was so overcome by emotion, and I, I was thinking about, well, that is such a wonderful payoff, but I have to imagine there's like this are we going to be able to do this? I, we, that it, your movie is going to work if this shot of him, if him having this well, emotional honestly, decision. Was, the moment driving. I did that take on Christian, and um, the moment I shot that take on Christian, I mean, he did it several times very well, but but I suddenly realized that the movie was going to work. Meaning you. I, I can't say one, all directors do this, but you do, 
not dissimilar to these racers. We exist in a crazy universe making movies where you are spending ungodly amounts of money. Whether they're a lower budget movie or a higher budget movie, one way or another, it's millions of dollars. And on a on a on a on a hunch that something's gonna work. And that the most beautiful part about the experience of making movies to me still and on my tenth feature is the is that moment you know that it's coming together, that the gamble, that the alchemy of the actors chosen, the space they're in at this moment in their lives, the script, the story, the shooting strategy, whatever it is, that there's some alchemy that's allowing these moments to happen. Um, I always think, I think it was John Huston who had this expression that, you know, a great film only really needs three or four great scenes. Mm -hmm. That, And I've always thought about it, meaning that it, it, what it really, what he's really saying is that even the greatest films have some mediocre or okay scenes, but they have three or four scenes that just kick ass, mm -hmm. and they change the perception of the entire. They lift all boats, mm -hmm. and let the that um, uh, I'm always making a movie going, ooh, we caught one, yeah. you know, we got one <laughs> of our four, and the and that moment with Christian was a movie saving moment because. It had to be. He had to catch some kind of magic in a bottle in that moment. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, I want to talk about the racing itself. Um, it is, you've got the speed, you've got that sense of danger. Um, these cars clearly vibrate and it's a visceral experience. But at the same time, so we're feeling all that. You've made it a pleasant experience. I am not in a tin can, you know, I, I am, you know, this feeling, it's this, it's to feel that energy, to feel that visceralness and, and, and to also feel the danger. You mean you don't feel bombarded or, uh, yeah. or, or kind of overloaded. Yeah. Yes. And, and that I, and it's, it's, I imagine it's every tool in the toolbox and a lot of figuring out how to do that. But, uh, I assume that's a what you were going for, and B, it's like how'd you figure out how to do to well, do that? Well, the beauty in post is that you can play. You you get to actually modulate. You're not on a set. You're mm -hmm. in a studio, and you mm -hmm. can modulate these things and find the balance. But I think what you're saying is dead on right, which is that the that you we're looking to put you there, but we're also not. I don't want to wring you dry or let you meaning. There's a kind of exhaustion. I, I mean, I only know I have with movies that are just loud and assaultive. I have a kind of uh, narcoleptic response. I have found myself literally spontaneously, my eyes rolling up in my head, and I just want to take a nap amid the noise. It's sensory overload. It is, it and is. it's like I feel like I'm uh, Malcolm McDowell in in <laughs> Clockwork Orange or something, and it's just too much. And that I'm aware of that. At the same time, I want to put you there, and I want you to feel it. But there is a, you know, there is a romance to movies. And, and in many ways, I think we've lost it a little because one of the ways that bigger budget movies try to, make, try to lift their preview scores, essentially, when the narrative isn't working, um, when the story isn't working, is just to beat the shit out of the audience mm -hmm. with sound and image and, and hope that if the camera's flying through the wings of a fly and the keyhole of a door and the sound is coming from 19 channels at 100 decibels that you're going to feel like there's drama. But the problem is that there's drama is not level. Um, drama is conflict and emotion. And that sometimes... Um, well, you know, there's an old... when well, I, I also went to theater school and there's an old 
adage in when they teach you to do um, fight training for the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one of the things the instructor said is that when you're fighting live on a stage, you never want the audience to feel it's out of control. Yeah. Because they stop believing, they start separating from the narrative, the Shakespeare play you're doing, and they start worrying about someone getting hurt. And that at that moment, it might be kind of titillating, but it's also not, they're no longer in the play. Mm. They're no longer under the spell. They're now worried about the safety of the human beings on the stage. And in a similar fashion, movies have this threshold by which at a certain point of saturation of noise and sound and music and pumping, it's no longer... You're no longer living through the characters. You're kind of, well, it's sensory overload. We're hitting the same topic mm-hmm. again, but it's it's a big topic in movies right now because I think there's a lot of films that are hurt by having the insecurity that they kind of push so hard mm. to prove themselves in Sound and Fury that they actually sometimes trample over something that more delicate that's going on inside the, inside the frame. The other thing that my understanding is um, for the racing Try to try to do this as practically as possible, as little CGA Absolutely. as possible. And I mean, uh, separate from maybe one or two shots, the, all the cars are real cars, and the and they're um, in every case, whenever we could, we were hurtling our actors through space, mm-hmm. either driving themselves or in follow cars, or we had this great device that our stunt team developed um, and had used on a couple other pictures called the biscuit, mm-hmm. and they keep refining and improving it for each picture, but the the biscuit is essentially a car that can be driven by a stunt driver sitting on top of the car. So if the camera is inside the cab with your driver, you can look almost 360 degrees in any direction and you think you're in a free driving car, but actually the the, the steering is disengaged and the driver is pretending to drive, but you have the advantage that they are actually hurtling through space over 100 miles an hour. So the G-force on their body, the sun moving through the windshield, the passing scenery, the vibration of the chassis, all that stuff is 100% real and nothing you could do on a studio looks like it. Yeah. And, and then also often, and I think you just kind of said this, you're also trying to accomplish that speed. Obviously you can make things look faster, but you are actually, you are actually getting these things no, up No, we there. want them to move because the one thing we want, you know, acting for movies is such a delicate thing because there's a acting for the stage you're never six inches from the nose of the actor Mm. um we're so close in movies we're invading the soul through the eyes Mm -hmm. um we're at a we're at a we're at a level of intimacy with the lens that we are not even allowed to be with each other and our friends i mean even our loved ones would go like if we're not kissing kissing them at that moment they'd be like what the <laughs> fuck are you doing sitting so close to me and that you're in my space and that the that level of invasion requires the actor not just to act but to feel mm. and that by i really feel that by like sending them through space hurtling through space there's a different performance happening mm-hmm. than if they were sitting in a green room getting bounced by a grip with a two by four in mm-hmm. a static car. It's also visceral. You feel that. I think it's yes. the same thing. I think it's the same thing. It's, I mean, the, it's the fact that the uh, unpredictable things are happening. You know, the sun may not be exactly where you want it. The, there might be a flare that mm-hmm. looks messy, but it adds a realism that, that the danger in the green screen film is that you everything is perfect. Mm-hmm. 
And in a way, that's one of the unique beauties of live-action filmmaking has always been the battle mm -hmm. against elements, things pushing against you, and you're having to adapt mm -hmm. to find the film. The danger now in what is be evolving into the kind of the pure green screen film is that there is no having to adapt. You could do any shot and anything. And in many ways, limitations are sometimes where the real creativity happens. Mm. And when you have no limitations, in a way, it deadens one of the interactive elements of directing a movie, if that makes any sense. It does. Is your approach to shooting, obviously, dramatically, each of these races means something different. Right. Is your approach to shooting them in the it kind of, it's always a very subjective experience, but like in terms of how you actually shot the race, did you, did you take a different approach to each one of these races? Um, or is it more just serving the story and, and, and uh, for each one? Well, no, they were, they were very different. I mean, there's really three and a half races in the movie. There's a very short, um, excerpt of a race that opens the picture where you're seeing Matt yeah. Damon as Carol Shelby racing and essentially the last race of his career. And it feels like a, it feels like a 1940s studio noir. Yes, <laughs> and, and we and so that was the strategy yeah. there. It was very much we almost wanted it to feel. I wanted it to feel. Well, you said it uh, a, a noir picture. It was why we chose to make it at night. The other reason I chose to make it at night is because I didn't want to kind of unveil Le Mans that much. Yeah. I wanted to kind of make it some kind of mysterious, foggy place with these lights, but that somehow the real unveiling of Le Mans, as we discussed earlier, would happen at the end of the picture when Christian's character got there. Um, the next race is a, is a kind of uh, Southern California hot rodders um, a race, a weekend race at Willow Springs, California, where we shot the actual place these guys all drove. And... Um, and that was essentially kind of another, in uh, yet another style, kind of homespun, dusty. Um, the, the cars, I mean, very much are different than the cars you see later in the picture because just like what happened in aeronautics, what happened in car design between the 50s and the 60s was a very big change. And the movement from the cars that most of those guys were driving into the kind of supersonic devices that the mid-60s brought was a big change. You know, the GT40 was a big change as much as a 747 is different than a prop plane. Mm -hmm. And um, and for all the car makers, there was a big change that occurred there where the what they were figuring out. So Willow Springs is the first complete race you see in the movie where, um, but it's kind of a, a, a race with the cars that are going to be saying goodbye. Mm -hmm. And it's in this dusty, hot, almost kind of um, uh, western atmosphere of, of, of the deserts of California. The, it's a long time till the next race, and that's Daytona, Florida. And, um, uh, and that race is very abridged. Um, so the strategy there was to kind of find a way. I, didn't, I still wanted to save most of my resources for the end of the picture. Um, I had some feeling that the only way to really communicate to an audience what a 24-hour race feels like um, would be to really make you live through 24 hours, mm -hmm. um, uh, literally less than an hour, yeah, but, but, yeah. but in the sense of it really investing in the moment-to-moment -moment adjustments and tactics they're making to get their bodies and their equipment through a 24-hour race. Um, and then, as I said, the last one is Le Mans itself, and that was a giant undertaking. I mean, it's... When you see the movie, it is, I would call, I would joke with my DP and, and my rest of my crew that we were making um, Saving Private Ryan in reverse <laughs> because it was essentially a drama mm -hmm. and a kind of chamber piece with an ensemble cast with a few splurges of action mm -hmm. that built toward, unlike Private Ryan, which opens 
with this kind of virtuosic piece of action mm -hmm. storming the beaches. Um, this movie is is a drama that builds toward it. And it was one of the things I really admired about even f um, other sports movies where, for instance, even in Rocky, it's really a character piece. Mm. It's what I think people love so much about the first Rocky is that it's entirely a character piece with a big fight at the end. Yeah. And, um, and there's not all that much fighting yeah. before the end of the picture. Yeah. And the, the other thing about that longer one, and in general, is, is, is there is drama, and, and we've talked about some of that, and it is intense, but also taking time to have a little fun you know, there, 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 and there's a part, and these guys do have to take a break. So Christian Bale is having a little coffee on the side. Yes. Tea. Uh, tea. Tea, tea, sorry, sorry. And, and, but there's also this element of the music it is, 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 is varied throughout this movie, and sometimes yeah. a little plucky and a little fun, yeah. and also building in a little humor, because like to maintain that longer race, right? It's in, and I have to imagine that's something that starts in the scripting phase, but it's something that is a careful balance that kind of goes throughout post. Of, well, uh, musically, to back up from the last thing you were saying, we can visit any of the others. Musically, what was interesting is when, I, you know, I myself did some work on the script, and when I was working on it and getting it ready for shooting, w one of the tracks I found, I'm a big music person myself um, and I found this James Burton album he's a very well-known guitarist in the 60s and 70s and played uh, sessions with all the I mean everybody um, from Elvis to uh, you couldn't you could you could just not never stop naming the number of uh, albums he played as a guest star electric guitar player but he had this I found this strange instrumental solo album he had done and this one track which you hear many times with the bass line and then the 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 uh, background singer is going chickaboom, 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 chickaboom. Yeah. And it somehow captured to me the energy of the movie, um, which I didn't want to be pompous or overly grand or overly, you know, 101 strings. I felt like we've seen that and heard it. I really wanted the movie to have a kind of jaunt that these guys felt to me was so much about who they were, um, a kind of um, cheekiness and and... Um, because I felt like more than anything, these guys did this stuff because they felt the exhilaration, um, which I didn't want to play as a kind of, you know, uh, overwrought beer commercial. I wanted it to be somehow, I wanted you to really feel like you were living with them, listening to the radio and living in the music of the time. That's wonderful. Um, the other things you're talking about were just, just, just all the other elements we were, you know having to play out and try and kind of uh, modulate um, and having fun in the pits and all that came from stories. I, we, you know, in doing research for the movies, um, Charlie Agapu, who um, is, is also played in the movie um, as the really young guy in the pits um, who comes along with them um, is, is uh, a car dealer um, still in his older years here in Beverly Hills, California. Well, we're not here in Beverly Hills <laughs> right now, but um, in Beverly Hills, California. And, uh, and Charlie came on set many a time and told us stories about he was at that race and in the pit. And other drivers would tell me stories about how, for instance, in the pits, one of the biggest things going on is each team is trying to psych out the next pit. Um, and ways that they can freak out the other side and make them, you know, make them not know what's going on or suddenly fear that their car is going down or, or the other team is having a problem or has a problem in hand. So there's a lot of mental chess games going on. Yeah. There's a, a, another thing here. I, you know, you've done action before, so maybe some of these things, 
you know the tools and the toys, but I, I have to imagine there's an element of you're sitting and you're, you're thinking this out, you're thinking about how you want to shoot these things, but then there's the technical aspect. Like, what can you do? What does it look like to have it, the camera outside the car or to the side of the car? And then what is technically possible? I'm wondering that balance between kind of like the ideal movie in your head and then the practicality of shooting because uh, car, car going well, you of do miles an hour. you you know the when I teach film, which I sometimes do, the number one thing I try to to impart to students is is that it, it somewhere along the line it dawned on me that the act of directing a movie is is the act of directing a movie is not just uh, for a lot of young filmmakers, and I think this happens because we start by making short films, which mm. are very easy for us to dream every single moment in advance and envision every little fucking moment of that five minute movie in advance. And so the shooting of the movie becomes a kind of loss. Mm. The shooting of, of our early pictures becomes a kind of series of, of, of failures mm. in which the real world the actors we manage to have in the movie, the set we manage, the equipment we manage, the crew we have um, let us down. And the vision we imagined in our bedrooms with a wet rag on our forehead is not what we get on the screen. And that what I'm always trying to impart to students is that the vision you have for your movie before you go on set is nothing but the vision. The real directing of the movie is the way you adapt to what the world gives you that the great movie directors who I've had the privilege to know or talk to always are, it, what makes their movies great is not the fact that they just stuck to their storyboard or their shot list or insisted an actor who couldn't handle the scene the way they, they envisioned it forced the actor to do it that way, that they adapted, that they saw, oh, this is the strength of this actor. I'm going to shift the point of view of this scene. Oh, this, is, this actor can't go there today. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get it out of this person. I'm going to, why am I here when I could be here? It, or the simplest, I, when I was making Copland years ago, the simplest answer I can have this is, I had a preset idea about how I was going to shoot scenes. And I, in the first week of production in New Jersey, I know I was looking, you know, I get these contact sheets of what the stills photographer on Copland was shooting. And I kept noticing consistently they were finding better shots than I was getting of my scenes. Mm -hmm. and, and it occurred to me it was because I wasn't looking. Because the stills man was arriving on my set and he was looking at what I had set up and finding the best angle on it. And I was arriving on my set and blocking something and doing the angles I had predetermined in my head were best. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't opening my eyes. And that the biggest thing and the hardest thing for a filmmaker to do, because one of the lies we directors tell in our press over and over again, and reporters like yourself encourage us to and it gets supported is that we act as though we saw the whole thing in advance mm. we want our narcissism wants 100 percent authorship so that the way we tell this narrative of making our movie we like to indicate that nothing stood in our way and all the forces bent to our imagination as i foresaw it like a god when the reality is that the most adept filmmakers who deliver a movie that looks like what they dreamt or what someone dreamt, the actual delivering of that movie is a series of compromises and tactic changes and adjustments to what the world is giving you and not just sticking so stubbornly to your guns that you're missing the beautiful collaboration with the world. 
It's uh, I've taught film school too, and there's a lot to learn from Alfred Hitchcock and the way he uses subjectivity. But unfortunately, one of the lessons that comes from that is also everything was like predetermined, pre. Yes, but you know, there's an interesting book. I think it's called Hitchcock's Notebooks, and there's also in interviews with Hitchcock's editors, mm -hmm. where most of them acknowledge that Hitchcock's spiel about how shooting with actors is just like moving puppets and cattle around. Um, and how the movie is exactly planned in advance. Well, first of all, it isn't. If you really study the storyboards, they're not exactly the same as the movie. Mm -hmm. And B, why do you think Jimmy Stewart kept coming back, Cary Grant, <laughs> if they were being, if they felt like puppets? Yeah, yeah. They didn't. And there's also an interview with his editor, um, and he shot coverage, meaning he didn't just shoot the eight seconds he needed and the three seconds he needed and this piece of that. That, yeah, it, that, that line. He that, was that, a filmmaker, yeah, yeah. but he also knew, Hitchcock knew, and he taught us all how to sell the public on the authorship of a filmmaker. Yeah. And the way he did that was telling a narrative by which you believed that the home movie was an extension of his private imagination. The Christian Bale family here is, is, is and it's so tied to what's going on with these men and what's at stake. And it's always hard to have the wife character because it's going to be about what he's doing and you don't have time too much to go into it. And so you got to do a lot of subtle backstory, a sense of who they are. Yeah. It, or you could fall into the wife trope. And there's this scene in this movie that I absolutely loved where they're having their fight and it's in a car and she's just going fast. And... It is such a it's such a wonderful scene, but I, I imagine so much of this is about finding out how you can make this emotional thing for this family and do it in terms where she's a real character and that dynamic. Well, it's something. a great question. I mean, I think there's several things, and it's a fine line you walk because when you're making a period film about a time where um, women's lives were not, were um, not as free as they are now, and certainly they're still not as free as they should be. But the fact is that um, we live in a time when there's even female race car drivers now. Mm. There was no such thing in that day and age. So you can't create a falsity, right? You can't pretend the world was better than that it is, simply out of kind of a woke pressure to make even the past look better, which in a way is almost doing damage because you're rewriting history and making it look like these things didn't occur. So you take that off the table, but there's another kind of trope that you want to avoid, which is that the that that the interior life of the female characters when you're making a period movie doesn't have to be limited. Their possibilities may be limited, their choices may be limited, but you want to cast and write for them so that you see the depth and yearning inside them. And um, from casting of Katrina Balfe, who is a, such an amazing actress and, um, and full person. I mean, she is not in any way to be contained. And, that, um, and, and in allowing her character to have moments where she runs the roost and she's, um, she isn't just wringing her hands worried about Ken dying. She's actually in one of my favorite moments of the movie, which is a kind of, which is a moment I helped write and was tricky moment. Um, she gets to this nugget, which is to me, it's like Ken's confused. Do you want me to quit racing or do you want me to keep racing? I don't understand. And what she says so beautifully after you're describing a scene where she drives so fast, she scares the shit out of him and gets him to admit that he's thinking of going back to racing. What she ends up saying to him, which I think is so true for relationships in general, is that 
She doesn't care whether he races or doesn't race. She just doesn't want him fucking hiding what he feels. And that, and it is a kind of dream moment in a relationship because it's all we ever crave for in our relationships is that we don't have to hide our desires, our real desires, that we're not having to kind of, that we can reveal who we are to the person we're closest to. And when she makes this grab, essentially grabbing him by the throat and saying, I want to know who you really are. I don't care which choice you're making. I just want to be close to who you really are. It is a really lovely moment. And also... It is terrific that she manages to take the wheel yeah. <laughs> and and take him to the edge of terror. Thank you so much for talking about this, but also this film. It's so much fun. Thank you so much. A pleasure. 